Welcome to Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sokolov. Coming to you on 88.3 WLIW-FM, Long Island's only NPR station. We've got a great guest today. We haven't talked about food in a really long time on this show. I haven't thought about food in about five minutes, but we haven't actually talked about food on this show pretty much ever, right? Well, no, because we had Colin Ambrose on and we've had oh, Eric right. Lemonides on from Almond. Uh, no, we've talked about restaurants, but we right. haven't talked about food. Right. And today we have Pollock Patel, who is a world-renowned chef. I mean, and also a, a gorgeous woman, if I may say so. That's who, awfully sexist. Well, I can say it because I'm also a gorgeous woman. I, but that's awfully sexist. <laughs> like, like why? What? It shouldn't matter what her gender is or what her looks are. You know, there, there was that Eleanor Roosevelt phrase which I love, which is, "When you're beautiful and you're young, it's a, it's a happy accident of nature. But when you're beautiful as you age, it's a work of art." Well. I, I have nothing to say about that and, and Eleanor Roosevelt. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> no, no, I love her. Anyway, so, but yeah, let's we, talk about food. Let's talk let's, about okay. Bridget. Like, so, you know, your your dad uh, owned several restaurants and in, in famous in institutional restaurants in, in and around New yeah. York City. Maxwell's Plum, Tavern on the Green, and the Russian Tea Room. And, and I certainly know that both with your dad and, and also with your mom, that food and feast and uh, repass and, and, and meals play such a big part, a big part in your family and in your, in even, you even put out a spread even when you're not putting out a spread. <laughs> like it's, it's part of the hosting, it's part of the giving. What, what is it about food, in your opinion, that goes past just sustenance and, and goes to this other emotional Well, for place? me, for me personally, I mean, my, with my father being so kind of fam- famous for food and, uh, you know, and he, he did say, that, you know, like, you can look it up. There's like a Warner Leroy quote, which is a restaurant is the only theater with it uses all five of your senses. And um, so he wasn't just a, you know, a restaurateur. He was also a showman. So for me, food, I mean, in a, in a kind of, I guess, dysfunctional way was the way that I could communicate with my father. So the fact that at six years old, I was eating caviar or, you know, uh, fish lips or monkey brains or like the weirder the food, the more the more kudos I got. Oh, and, and, right, and, and, and you say weirder, but it's really these are foods that in different cultures are part of the culture, but in, in our culture, yeah. they, they are quote unquote weird. Yeah. And so really it's a chance to kind of lock into your identity, to your uh, your culture, to your family, to your history. But it's more than that. You know, it's also that the celebrities in my life going on, I mean, obviously the celebrities were the celebrities because I also had the showbiz thing going on, but it was like, you know, Pierre Frenet and Craig Claiborne cooking together in my kitchen or James Beard being at the table and you know, my, my stepmother making, my stepmother, Kayla Roy, who's also a fantastic chef, making the most difficult dish she ever made. And I, I asked her about this and she made it for James Beard. What she did was deboned a chicken and then stuffed the chicken where the bones would be with some sort of it, like spinach thing or something like that. So the chicken retained its shape without bones. I mean, I've never heard of that. And we are going to bring Pollock Patel on to discuss her journey through food. But for me, it was like, food was magic. It was magic in a way. Unless you're the chicken. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That chicken didn't fare too well. Yeah. And I would say for myself that cooking and creating is part of my writing day and, and part of every day, but really my writing day when I'm actively writing anything, I find that the balance of my work kind of put thoughts on the page kind of comes by then stopping and then kind of creating a meal for either myself or, or my family or whomever 
and and that it's the sensual and the senses and it's everything. It's the touch. It's the smells. It's the aromas. It's the flavors. Mm. And most importantly for me, it is the ability to stop time and just enjoy a moment with people you love. And and that's what I think about when I think about food. Can I just say something you have never cooked for me and we've known each other for 40 years? Like I said, the people I love. Ah, okay. So no, that's no, like a, good, kidding. A, good kidding. Place, <laughs> a good place to take a break. You're listening to Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy. And we're going to come back with our guest, Chef Pollock Patel, who has beat Bobby Flay and is just an absolutely amazing person with an incredible backstory. You're listening to us on WLIW dot org slash radio or on your radio dial at 88.3 WLIW FM Long Island's only NPR station. We'll be right back after this. What's the food you love the most? You can have a piece of toast, crust cut off, spread with jelly. What you want to fill your belly? Scrambled eggs, grilled cheese, pancakes served with blueberries, tuna melts, tomato soup, carrots and dip with cut up fruit. What do you want? lunch today what do you want for lunch today we're back sundays on the east end with bridget Leroy and alex Sokolow. and i'd like to bring our guest on today who's a friend of mine who is an incredible chef and a niche chef as well Palak Patel, how are you today? I'm doing really well, thank you. How are you? Good, so what's for dinner? <laughs> I haven't gotten past lunch yet. <laughs> okay. We're always thinking about food. Where are we finding you? Well, right now I have escaped New York for a, a hot minute. Um, I'm in Atlanta at the moment. I'm heading back up to New York um, next week on the 1st. You come from a family of immigrants, and you you landed in in Atlanta, did you not? I mean, tell us the story about your journey as a child. Yeah, I you know it, it's really funny because when you're a kid, you always think the childhood that you had is normal, and that that's everybody's normal until then you move to a new country and you're like, what? You didn't live with fifteen of your relatives in a three story house and eat together. Oh, you had a refrigerator? And so these are the things that were kind of uh, such a big part of my childhood. I grew up in India until I was the age of 12. I went to the market with my mom every day. Um, you know, the women in my household, like the grandma, the aunts, and my mom were in the kitchen. Basically, every single meal was a production and uh, because we didn't have a refrigerator, there was no such thing as like batch cooking. So like you cooked with what was available, you cooked every day, it wasn't a chore. And so that was part of my upbringing. And then when I moved here, I'm like, oh, there's this thing that you can put food in that keeps it cold. Right. <laughs> so did you rebel as a child? Like, did you just start eating like nothing but McDonald's? No. Um. You know, it's really interesting because... The, the culture shock is one thing, but the, the shock of food, I very vividly remember um, we got picked up from the airport and my uncle got us two things that were, in his words, quintessential American foods. Brace yourselves. It was Pizza Hut and Taco Bell. And <laughs> Oh, my go. God. <laughs> <laughs> were the first two things that were put on 
the the table for lunch and I seriously, I mean, I couldn't get past like a weird sensation of touching and seeing cheese like extend. And I just thought it was the grossest thing on the planet. Like I had never seen cheese and I was like, what is this? Like the Taco Bell is, is a little bit closely aligned to some things that look like Indian food. And we have um, kind of the Indian replacements for that. So not as crazy and, and, and a big of a leap, but the pizza, specifically <laughs> the cheese, the melting cheese on the pizza was absolutely horrifying to my 12 year old <laughs> self. Um, and, and to your intestines. <laughs> and why Atlanta? Because you had family there? Um, we landed in Chicago. And then shortly, um, maybe about six weeks later, uh, Atlanta. One of the reasons is my mom's brother went to pharmacy school here. So he's been here since the early or mid-70s, I should say. He came here for mm -hmm. schooling, stayed, uh, you know, had a family. And then because it was just him and my mom, he was like, hey, why don't you come here? My mom got a win that the Chicago winters weren't for her dainty little heart. And so she yeah. needed to look at my dad and she was like, we're going down south. And how old were you when you landed in Atlanta? Uh, 12. I mean, we and it was just in, in a matter of like weeks. We, we started in Chicago and then my uncle was in the process of moving already. So he was selling the house. We got in a car and then we drove to Atlanta and both the families moved uh, to Atlanta. My ex-wife is from Atlanta. We were married for 27 years. And um, I, anytime I was down in Atlanta, I, I was always kind of uh, drawn by, and I like to keep the conversation about cuisine, is that if it's not fried, it's not from the <laughs> South. You know, that somehow the first time I went down there to visit her family, she told her mom, no fried food, and then fried okra showed up, and she's like, "I couldn't help myself." You know? <laughs> yeah, what was your exposure from, uh, you know, traditional Indian cuisine, you know, made fresh and everything, to to then being in Atlanta? I mean, what was it like when you went to your friends' houses? You've already talked about the markets. You've talked about cooking every day, so food was already just part of your narrative. Yeah, absolutely. It was like in my DNA. Like I could recognize things; they were colorful. I could smell them now contrast that with like being at school in those beige, you know, uh, trays with like tater tots that match the tray. Nothing looked alive. The chicken nuggets were so gnarly. You're vegan, aren't you? I'm vegan-ish. Uh, over the years, I've, I've kind of gone full circle. I went from being a complete vegetarian to moving here and kind of eating a little bit of, you know, I tried everything, you know, crystal burgers, um, chicken nuggets at school, I finally caved in, um, you know, random things here and there when my parents weren't looking. And then when I went to college, I, I really expanded and was like, Oh, yeah, that's cool. Like I started eating chicken and turkey and fish. I went to culinary school, uh, French train, lived in the south of France. What was your initial attraction to actually wanting to live and work in the culinary world? Like, what? when would you say, you know, this is my path? I wanted to do that since I was in my 20s, right after I finished undergrad. And my parents uh, basically said, uh, no way. Because they, you know, they were like, we didn't work so hard to put you through school. You're going to 
you know, get your master's or get your, you know, MBA, whatever, work a desk job, get the title, um, move up the ladder and have a cushy job. Cooking for a living was absolutely out of the question. Right. So you did that for a while, didn't you? You did the corporate? A little while, 15 years. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about that and then about... Uh, and then we'll take a break when you hit your right, right. hit your decision making. I mean, this is a fascinating yeah. philosophical conversation, and and having been a child and a, and a parent, I understand both sides of the conversation. How hard was it for you to have that voice, that super ego, kind of banging around your head while you're you're finding yourself being drawn into something that that may cause a collision with with your uh, with with your parents? Yeah, I mean, it is an interesting uh, couple of factors that play into that. Number one, culturally, it's like, you know, we're always raised and taught to respect kind of what the parents say, whether we like it or not. I mean, and even when you're an adult, you're not really an adult. You're always their child. And so I definitely had this. I, I was headstrong, meaning that all the years I was definitely gunning to quit at whatever stage, I wasn't going to give it up. And so it just was a matter of time where I orchestrated it as such that they just, I seamlessly, I went to school at night, I started a business, I moved to San Francisco. So I did a lot of things in parallel without them realizing that at one point, I was just going to pull the bandaid and just say, okay, now it's time. So right, right, right. So so tell tell us about that 15 years where you weren't pursuing your bliss, but you know, obviously you, you throw yourself into everything with passion. So what was it that you were doing in the corporate world? I, I worked for, um, a couple of startups. Uh, I moved my first big, uh, role was out in California working in Berkeley for a neuroscience company, um, that basically measured brainwaves, uh, to measure advertising, something so non-related to cooking. And, and, yet, and yet Berkeley, the home of Alice Waters, and really the, the revolution of, of herbs and, and farm-to-table uh, cooking in America. So you're also right in the shadows of, of this wonderful legacy. Well, funny you should bring her up because she is an absolute idol of mine. And it was at Chez Panin when I had a potato dish of hers that just like made me sing out of body experience. And I have been following her since that time when I lived in Berkeley and had my first exposure to going back to farmers markets to understanding what food looks like in its, you know, raw form. It has dirt on it. Um, so it was it was by no accident that I landed in Berkeley and was like, OK, I'm not that far off. Yeah. And so, you know, those corporate years were great because obviously, you know, I think in, in life in general, any skill that you have will never go to waste. Right. So those right. those organization that that business savvy, I got to travel the world. And and I mean, I saw corners of the world and, and tasted food and I had that privilege of seeing the world through not just a business person, but as a, you know, budding chef. And right. so I, I don't regret it. I wish I'd pulled the trigger earlier, but, you know, everybody's yeah. path is different. I Absolutely. And I, I would also just add that the, the corporate world does many things and, and a lot you can be you joked about and a lot could be soul sucking maybe. But it really does, I think, force people that are going through it. To really look inside and say, what do I want out of this earthly existence? And who am I? And what am I? And it sounds like you were going through all of that. And yet your authentic self was, was always reaching for this other 
reality. Yeah, absolutely. I felt alive when I was near food, when I was near people. And and just, I mean, I am one of the few people, and I describe this to people, they cannot believe it. I'm one of the few people that I can tell you off the top of my head, like three or four times where just eating a bite of food has brought me to tears, like mm. virtually like melted to my seat. And these experiences, like if that's not a, you know, indication that this is what I should be doing, then I don't know what is. That's amazing. Well, that sounds like a really good place to take a break. You're listening to Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sokolow. Coming to you on 88.3 WLIW-FM, Long Island's only NPR station. We're talking with Chef Palak Patel about her incredible life and food that brings you to tears. And we're going to come back and hear about some of that right after this. Back Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy and Alex Sokolow and our guest Palak Patel. Uh, we've just gotten to this point in your in your story where you have been up the corporate ladder about as far as you wanted to go and are still interacting with the world through your love of food. It sounds like that could you have such deep emotions around it. Let's jump into into this. So you you decide to make the leap to become a chef and to become uh, somebody that is going to live in and amongst the the culinary world. Um, well, I want to hear about how she decided that. Yeah, how did you a- decide that? And then what were the first steps you took? Yeah, um, I came to New York from San Francisco uh, through a corporate relocation. I was put here for a six-month assignment uh, for a client that was here, and I was poking around online trying to find a place that maybe I could teach a cooking class, and I landed on the culinary school. I went to ICC, and I landed on their website, and the first day of that evening course, um, that, that program was on my birthday. And so I'm like, that's a sign. I'm going to culinary school, and literally... I made an appointment and, um, you know, wrote a bunch of essays. I got a scholarship and I started school on my 31st birthday in all states. I, I just, I, that was the best present I could have given to myself. And, and going back to your folks, like right. when you do this, what, what was their, uh, you know, what was their reaction and or support or lack thereof? I, I think um, most immigrants will understand this. You you will do a lot of tap dancing to appease immigrant parents. And so my story, um, I still hold to this. I was like, it's just a hobby. I still have a job, which I did, right? Um, right, right. I was like, oh, it's just a hobby. I'm, I'm just going to school because, you know, like I got a scholarship. And I mean, they had no idea. I, I, I took a alone. Um, but I was an adult. I was making my own money. So, but to them, it was, it was just a hobby. <laughs> right. Right. So when did you pull the trigger, so to speak, and change from, 
you know, make that enormous leap because it wasn't just um, it wasn't just a, a financial leap or the, like when anybody changes jobs, but it also had to do with your family and their opinion of you. So what what was the moment where you were like, I got to do this? Yeah, I, I took a little time off after the company sold. I went to work in the south of France, which they understood because I, I had worked really hard and, and had equity in the company. So they were like, yeah, go, go, you know, live your live your dreams. But I came back and, and took on another corporate job, which was my last one. And for the first, I would say a year and a half, I did not tell them that I had quit. I was solely building my client base. I was doing my website. I was doing a lot of projects. I was hustling. When you say client base, were you doing private chefing? What, what were, how were you growing your uh, business? Because I had already been doing um, moonlighting. So a lot of people just knew. And, and in between graduating culinary school, I got a call from Food Network um, and I won Chopped very early in my career. And so that between Chopped and beating Bobby Flay within two years uh, time. What, what were your ingredients on Chopped? Yeah, we want to know. We want to know your, because like, seriously, we want to know. I play, I I play Chopped with my kids and it's the, it's the greatest it's thing. It's fun. It's fun. So what happened with Chopped? Tell us about your... Chopped was like beetroot green, seitan. I mean, I'm just going by, not by basket, but just random ingredients. It was crab tree apple. There was liquid amino. There was uh, brewer's yeast, um, you know, big uh, fluke that I had to uh, fillet. Um, yeah, just very random things. A uh, spec, um, which is... Like Ham product uh, for my dessert basket. So yeah, it was um, and it is you know it's it's interesting because uh, we had this conversation with some folks yesterday. That I mean, everyone wants to know the the reality of that show is why it's so successful because the pressure is exactly what you see. What you see is what I'm feeling. There is no you know stopping of the cameras to reset when that timer starts. I'm seeing the basket the first time the way that you're seeing it. So. There is no element of preparation. Um, you know, it's like it, go time. As soon as you open it, you just lunge into it. What did you make? I believe I did. Um, there's a very traditional, beautiful seitan curry um, that I did. Um, and then the second thing I did, a um, panko crusted fluke with a lemongrass uh, coconut curry. And then my dessert was the worst round, which I, uh, there was a spoglia, which is a very dense bread. And I made like, um, I even forget, like a French toast, French toast with crab tree apple or yeah, crab tree apple. Wind chopped. And now all of a sudden you, you are a media uh, brand, whether or not that's something that you were planning on being or not. And, and how did you then uh, find yourself uh, flaying Bobby Flay? <laughs> Again, I think. I was just as surprised as the next person that I was like, wait, what? I won top. Apparently <laughs> the the cameras don't bother me and I actually work very well under stress. And so when they told me about Be Bobby Play, I kind of was like laughing. I was like, no way. They're like, yeah, don't worry. Like you have to go through somebody before you get to Bobby anyway. And I was like, dear God. Um, and so it was, you know, one of these things that I was like, well, I had made a promise to myself, do not cut yourself and do not serve anything raw because that's my reputation. Other than that, 
lose, then lose with grace. That was my kind of mantra to myself when I went in. And long behold, I, I got through the first round and beat Bobby Flay with my chicken curry. Curry seems to be the running thing. So you really always have stayed pretty true to your roots with your cooking. Yeah, what I realized after culinary school and working in France is that, and for any chef, there are a very few chefs that have deviated from their, what their core culture and core like cuisine that they grew up with, unless they spent time in a region um, to really master that cuisine. What you grew up with tends to be what we love and what we end up gravitating towards. So if you had to describe your uh, expertise and your style and your statement as a chef, would, would it be in Indian cuisine that you're fusing into other things or how would you define yourself as a chef? Yeah, I definitely, there are a lot of elements of Indian cooking. In fact, um, Bridget and I did a party, a, a dinner thing last year um, with a theme called Indian Summer. And so I put my flair of ingredients that people aren't familiar with into dishes that just have a freshness about them. So everybody loves corn, but there is a way to prepare Indian corn. Everyone loves a potato salad, but I love putting coriander in it, right? So there are things that are very true and very close to my culture that I love giving people a window into um, through food. I want to hear about what food made you cry. <laughs> um, well, a couple, but the first one, um, I was at dinner at uh, Brooklyn Fair, and it was a multi-course something or the other, and there was a dish that came in. It was uni with a little brioche, a sauce, which I still till this day don't know, and then a um, truffle bite, something, as soon as I bit into it, something this flavor bomb exploded to the point that I just, I had tears just rolling down my cheeks. I, I couldn't talk. I couldn't breathe. And and the guy who I went with, who's just trying to talk to me. I'm like, I'm having a moment. Do not talk to me right now. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was one. Um, and again, the second time was a, a brioche and um, a Meyer lemon butter and something else that I ate out in uh, Sonoma. And I, mm. I took a bite and I felt my body just like melting into the chair. I was like, what is happening to my taste buds? <laughs> was that at French Laundry? No, it was just a tiny little place. You know, I, I, I don't think that that fancy places are kind of synonymous with those experiences. Just more you taste something in its freshness or you taste love in something. What, what I love about what you're saying, though, and I, I this is my bias, is that a lot of like... Uh, places, I'm not going to say the French Laundry is one of the places, but a lot of places that have big reputations, I think, drown in their reputation. And it's, for me, the most exciting thing with food is the surprise of all the senses. And that tends to come when I am not expecting, self-consciously expecting something. It's Can more you, just to have something. Do you remember, Sock, like a, a time where you ate something so absolutely surprising and fantastic that it has stayed with you? I have one. We, why don't you start? Well, mine was, I, I was in Hong Kong with my father. We were alone on a trip, which was a, a really special thing because, you know, he had another family and all of that. But we went to, uh, we went to Japan together for three weeks and we spent a couple of nights in Hong Kong. We were on a yacht in Hong Kong and the, like just this guy got off, you know, went into the water, came back with a crab 
huge, uh, I don't know what kind of crab it was, but it was a crab that was in the water off Hong Kong and threw it into a wok with ginger and scallions and a little soy sauce. And I don't know what else. I don't know what else, but I had that same experience where it was literally like, I've never had a, a, a taste experience like that ever again in my life. Like uh, I, I could not, I was 15 and it was like the most incredible moment of my, <laughs> it's been downhill since then, but it was just everything about it was like, you know, you remember that moment so clearly because it is one of our senses and it imprints on us. So that's, yeah, and, and, you? And, you know, my mind's dancing around to a lot of things. And, and a lot of it, again, goes to the people I was with and, and where I was more than the, the food itself. But a falafel I had in, in uh, the, the Jewish section of Paris uh, mm. with my ex-wife once uh, really jumps out in my mind right now. Just, again, the flavor seems so fresh and all the flavors combined so well. Uh, but also there was, a, um, there was a wonton soup that was inverted where the soup was inside the dumpling. Oh, soup uh, dumplings. I love soup dumplings. All right. Well, then yeah. you know it. I, I don't know the technical name. but It's that, a thing. All right. Well, then you, then you can finish my thought. No. Can, please continue about no, your soup I, dumplings. I, 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 you just said it. So. I, they, they are amazing. So you talked about um, your relationship to the East End a little bit, Pollack. Um, but tell me a little bit more about how you infuse your mission statement or your background or your flavors into the foods that people don't expect it to be in, like you said, potato salad. Yeah, it's, um, I'm really privileged that I grew up with such a rich and diverse cuisine. And while it is complicated to most folks, I am at an advantage because that was something I just grew up with. You know, it, it makes me laugh when I see the spice of the year. I mean, we've been using turmeric thousands of years and not just in eating, might I add. Um, so I think it's it's a really nice platform to have to be able to take elements of that and, and share with people, whether it's, it's, you know, hey, here's an easy way to incorporate this, or have you thought about this? Or even like just, um, I think we touched on curry a little bit, but just using that piece to also educate people um, that are curious about the food. I would like to go back to curry. Let's talk about yeah. curry, right? Curry is a word curry. that is so synonymous with Indian cuisine. I had heard when I was in my 20s that uh, when, the, when the British Empire was trying to colonize India, that the initial curries were like every flavor that would give the British indigestion and, <laughs> and that uh, the British loved it. And that curry is even like a word that the British use for Indian cuisine. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's that's what I had heard years ago. Yeah, it's um, it's obviously because they didn't know the names. Um, partly maybe because they never really wanted to learn, and so um, they kind of just bastardized every single curry name and lumped it into anything with a sauce they called a curry, and so. Curry is not just one thing. Curry is not just one spice. It is a blend of so many different um, spices and expressions and regions and, and small nuances to the ingredients then make the curry um, regional, just like we would have barbecue in America, barbecue from, you know, St. Louis or barbecue from North Carolina. Right, it's all different. It's all barbecue, but it's it's the regionality of the food and then the people that are making it and the stories of 
why somebody uses hickory versus this and, and right. somebody uses vinegar, you know, opposed to something else. It's, it's the same thing with curry. And because there are so many regions and India as a country, if you look at it, it, it from the top to the bottom, it covers so many different temperatures where you have the mountains and snow capped, you know, mountains on the top. You have beaches to the left, um, you know, and then you have like coastlines um, at the tip of the country. So, of course, the food will match what is nearby and the environment. And so when you go down south, of course, you'll see a lot more coconut. You'll see a lot of different lighter spices because it's warmer. As you get north, you'll see the curries are a little bit um, heavier in, in terms of, of preparation. There's a bit more fat to it. Um, instead of fish, you'll find a lot of goat or chicken um, or lamb in the preparation. So it, it just, it speaks to the people. And, and that's why I think um, the generic word carried on. And is there a difference between curry and a proper curry? There's only a difference between good curry and bad curry in my opinion. Okay. <laughs> and, and, and do you, are you drawn to a specific group of ingredients from where you, you and your family came from? Or are you really more agnostic and really just look at whatever is around and then you just kind of create your from there? Yeah, there. of course, there are certain things that I love that um, are kind of the flavor meters for me that just kind of, you know, you know, that like cartoon that like wafts into the kitchen with the smell of that's, that's me. I'm like the cartoon when I smell, you know, curry leaves or fresh tomatoes. Um, my family's from West India, so most of the things that we would make are fairly lighter. We don't really have a curry, so to speak. We have a lot of lentil-based things because we are kind of the classified vegetarian region within India. Even though most of India is vegetarian, West India specifically is very strict. Um, with uh, It's a, the, one of the dry states within the country. And so meat and alcohol are absolutely a no-go. So, you know, for my side where I come from, um, curries aren't as popular, but over the years, having traveled and, and, you know, dined with other folks from different parts of India, I, I go towards the coconut, a curry leaves, the lighter life. And I want to get back. I mean, you're talking about how the smells and the people and all of that. So, you know, we got to the part where you kind of have, you know, one chop, you beat Bobby Flay. Um, at that point, I assume your parents are now accepting the fact that you have <laughs> made the leap because you've been very, you've gone, you've gone public. So, you know, what's the, what's next? I mean, do you open a restaurant? Do you write a cookbook? I mean, where do you go with your, your passion and I guess the ability to monetize it along the way? Yeah. And, um, you know, prior to the pandemic, I was marching down that uh, Indian inspired uh, plant-based option. Um, it's still on the books, but in a different uh, format. I think everyone uh, around the world is having to pivot in some regard. And so I am in conversations to um, modify that particular project. Um, I've been the last two years, I've been taking uh, writing courses and writing short stories. And I think, Bridget, you've, you've read some of it, but I think it's so important for me. Um, the, the plain cookbook is lovely, but I really wanted the exercise of 
sharing some of these stories because I've traveled to 50 countries. I've done crazy things. I've climbed Kilimanjaro and I thought, you know, the intersection of food, the, the life that I've lived, you know, overseas, making the career change, being a woman, I thought that kind of lent itself into a more than a cookbook. Um, so kind of finding a hybrid between the stories and the food. Um, so if I do the, the cookbook, it would be in that format. We're going to take just a very quick break. Um, when we come back, I want to hear some of your stories, especially about shopping in the market with your, your grandmother, I think it is, which, uh, which is one of the stories that I read. So uh, we're going to take a little break. You're listening to Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sokolo. And we're coming to you on 88.3 WLIW-FM, Long Island's only NPR station. We'll be right back. Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy yeah, and our guest, Chef Palak Patel. And uh, you were just talking about, you know, food for so many of us. And I mean, for Alec as well, food is a story. It's not just a meal. And you have stories about the food in your life. And it starts from a very, very young age. So can you tell us, like you were talking about the cookbook, not really being a cookbook, it's more like a, a cook biography. So tell me, tell me about some of your earliest memories with food. Yeah, and I think, you know, for me, I, I, I didn't think that growing up cooking was, first of all, optional for me. I mean, my mom threatened me. She was like, you know, uh, and no, no Indian is ever surprised to hear this, that she's like, oh, you'll never get married if you don't learn how to cook. She's like, they're going to send you back to us and, you know, these things. And I was like, what? I'm only four. Um, <laughs> <laughs> imagine being told that over and over but within that that fear-based uh, parenting um came this idea that i just naturally gravitated towards the kitchen um one of the reasons is because i had two aunts um, my mother um we had like a, a housekeeper i used to take care of us um at times and then my grandmother and so all of these women um for them to congregate in the kitchen and, and kind of be there for each other, share stories. So this was kind of my first foray into what women like supporting each other and gossiping and, and building a community through food. That was my first kind of experience. And then of course, going to the market and, and I mean, you even as an adult right now, I, I just picked a fresh jalapeno from the garden and you would have think that I won the lottery. Just the of of seeing something on a tree, being able to pick it and and care for it and bring it home. I mean, it, it brings me so much joy, and that's from those childhood memories of being able to pick fresh mangoes and going to our neighbor's house because they had a guava tree, and then we had a stick, and then we would put the guavas in like an old rag, you know, tie them up and bring them home. And it's just like that that those memories are what defined kind of my food joy meter, so to speak. In America, what are the ingredients that you would say give you that pleasure in America? Like, are there specifically American things or is it, is, like, is it uh, herbs or herbs and peppers or peppers no matter where you are? And if you get the right one, then you get moved? I, I mean, peppers definitely, but peppers aren't really our own and the peppers aren't Indians either. The Portuguese brought us peppers. Um, but mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, any kind of, of pepper in any, any form. So you asked about this. Funny enough, I am like a hawk waiting for 
uh, August and September because the hatch chili season is coming. And unfortunately, if I can't go to LA, I'm going to have to have a friend ship me a box because summers are only in season twice a year, or sorry, two months out of the year, I should say. And they're just heavenly. And I keep, I roast them. I then vacuum seal it into flat bags. And that's my supply for the year. I'm down to the last bag and I'm of hatch chilies to arrive from and they're they're native to new mexico you're waiting for your, your hatch your hatch connection <laughs> oh, yeah but it's it's that i think berries um we, i just took my family berry picking recently um berries are something that are new um that are kind of the american thing for me uh, especially blackberries, because we had a cousin of it in India, which is called something different, but similar shape, color. Um, and so just going to pick fresh berries. Um, and what will you do with the berries? Do you, do you make jams and preserves, or will you use them in sauces, or will you eat them naturally? A um, couple of different things. Um, I froze some of them that were very tart for smoothies. I made like a tart with the blueberries. And um, mm. the strawberries, I, I kind of made it into a, a quick jam, which was just good enough for a year, for the week, sorry, because I didn't want to put that much sugar in it. Um, yeah, so I, mm. I like to just keep them pretty authentic to where they are. I don't want to change them to a flavor or form that I don't really recognize and, and eating just fresh fruit. I think Alice Waters um, used to have this thing at her restaurant where they would just serve a bowl of fruit. And it's, it is a life-changing thing when you eat something in its peak season, unadulterated, mm -hmm. just the way that it's intended to be consumed in season. And that will change your life forever. And so, yeah, picking a fresh berry that's peak at season, washing it and just eating it is good enough for me. So that brings me kind of to uh, talking about the East End. We are Sundays on the East End and you are a, a frequent visitor. You've well known out here and we had that Indian summer event last summer of course there aren't events this summer but when you think of the east end of long island you know what what excites you on on the food spectrum corn <laughs> yeah. i love the corn i like going and hoarding corn from that one particular stall and i just can't i can't get enough of uh you know the sweet local corn i and the heirloom tomatoes, but yeah, the the corn I think uh, is something I re it really takes me back home. Do you still cook fish? Yeah, you do, I, don't I you? I still cook everything. It, my my philosophy is that I'm I am only there to enhance people's plate. I'm not there to tell you what you can or cannot eat. I do know a lot, and I read a lot about our food system, but I think. In order for people to change, you have to give them viable options. I want to inspire rather than kind of, you know, insult what people are eating. And so, yeah, I mean, if I show you how to cook something that may not be what is that comes from chicken or fish and you love it, add it, add it to the thing. I'm not asking you to remove it. But I think it's just by exposing people to other options. You, you mentioned philosophy. What is your philosophy? when it comes to uh, creating in the kitchen? Like, do you have something that, that you always fall back on? Well, I, I definitely, you know, vegetables and, and legumes and, and grains are my, my jam. Um, so I rely okay. very heavily on, on vegetables. And, you know, when 
the event that we did, we had beautiful local fish. Um, so we did that. But, you know, I think it's it's for me going back to finding something that's lovely and, and in season or fresh is, is good. You also talked about inspiration and, you know, I, I know that you, um, you are also like just a deeply spiritual person. When we have our girl talks, we tend to kind of go off, go off the reservation, so to speak. So what do you do to inspire others? Do you teach? Yeah, I, I teach and I, I like to show by example. So I love having, you know, somebody will call me and just say, Hey, I, send me pictures of like, I found this, or I don't know what this is, what can I do with it? And the most um, amazing feeling for me is when they actually go out, they buy it or experiment with it. And I'm like, or put it in their recipe repertoire. I'm like, Oh, my God, this is so amazing. We're still cooking it. Thank you so much for introducing us. Or I didn't think I liked radishes. I love radishes. Thank you for introducing me to that. Or I didn't know what Israeli, you know, pearl couscous was. Like, I love making it. Thank you for teaching me that. And I think it's, mm-hmm. it's a lovely place to be able to inspire people and, and empower them to experiment and giving them the quarantine's done that for me. I've done a lot of videos and just finding whatever's in my house or whatever I'm able to get a hold of and just kind of talking people through like, hey, this is this particular ingredient and um you know the one recent one that i did is just talking about italian tomatoes and like making tomato sauce where can people see your your videos they're on instagram uh i'm at chef pollock um and so i've just been uploading little short uh igtv videos um when i'm in the kitchen i just throw my phone on the uh window and then kind of just film myself so that's chef pollock that's p-a-l-a-k on Instagram. And so what, what, what next? I mean, after it, you were on the road to basically opening your own place yeah. <laughs> before the, the plague hit us, what philosophically, I mean, Alec was talking about what philosophically, like, where are you at with that and everything that you're willing to share with us, of course? Yeah, of course. Um, I, I am working on something um, that is again, um, may not be exactly what I was intending to do, but close enough. Um, I'll hopefully get to share a little bit about that over the next week and a half. Um, but I think philosophically speaking, uh, the, the pandemic has taught me to one, I think the, the biggest thing is like things don't happen to us, they happen for us. And so for whatever reason, um, you know, I think in some regard, I was blessed because I was, you know, 10 days away from um, signing the lease and, and taking on a ridiculous amount of investment money. And, and I, you know, the, the pandemic stopped us dead in the tracks. So I think early on, it feels very gutting to experience something like that, especially when you've spent six or seven months going through you know, the the due diligence and finding a space and negotiating and legal fees and all that. But I think you ultimately think about the goal is to bring the food that I love. And sometimes the form of how that happens can change. And I'm open to that change. And I think that's the most important part that, you know, we we can't survive this if we're so rigid in trying to go back to recreating what 
was there before the pandemic. And so just being a little bit open and flexible to moving with the times and, and understanding that it, you know, whatever happened wasn't personal and, you know, I learned a lot from it and eventually it will come into form a uh, different time, different, you know, incarnation. And food is creativity. And we're finding from everyone that we've spoken to, whether they're writers or musicians or performers, or they're all finding ways of staying creative throughout this pandemic. Yes. I think it's, um, it's the thing that keeps you sane. Perfect dinner party. Who would you have as your guest? Perfect dinner party. Um, this is not going to be very, I, it's, it's gotta be two of my grandpas. I never met, uh, my grandfathers on either side. And I often look at my dad um, and my uncle and I think to myself, gosh, like, what is it like to have a conversation? What is it like to have a grandfather? And I don't know that. Um, I, you know, I'm blessed to have spent time, lots of lots of time with both my grandmothers. Uh, one was in her like late 90s when she passed away a few years ago. So I would love that opportunity to just get to know my grandfathers. Beautiful. And perhaps uh, through the, the food and creation and meals that you have, you do know them. And we all know uh, where we came from by the food we enjoy. Thank you. Thank you so much, Palak. We've loved having you on the show. Uh, Alec, you want to take us out? Yeah, everybody. Thanks for listening. I hope that your palates are wet and you're salivating and you're thinking about your next meal. I also think uh, if I can take a, among the things I'll take away from this conversation is that, you know, what, what unifies us as, as a planet and everybody on this planet needs to stop and eat and what we eat and who, who we dine with and what the ingredients are really are things that everybody on this planet uh, experiences every day uh, that they can. So I would say enjoy your food, cherish your food and try and find uh, perhaps a little authenticity in the things you make you know, close the cookbook and just uh, trust your instincts a little bit more. That's what I would say. Everybody have a good week. Uh, be well and stay well. So let's leave some blue up above us. Let's leave some green on the ground. It's on the earth to borrow. Let's save some part tomorrow. Leave it and pass it on down. So let's leave some Leave some green on the ground It's only ours to borrow Let's save some for tomorrow Leave it and pass it on down